0: Hello and welcome to the fifth episode in our series of commercial litigation update podcasts. My name is Anna Pratoldi, and I'm the partner responsible for litigation know-how here at Herbert Smith Freehills. Joining me for this podcast are Maura McIntosh, who is a professional support consultant in the litigation team, and Joanne Keeler, who is a senior associate in the disputes team. In this edition, I will briefly outline the state of play for Brexit, as it affects litigation in the English Courts. Then, Mora will look at some developments since our last update relating to the disclosure pilot, witness evidence reform and remote hearings. And finally, Joanne will look at some developments relating to so-called class action tourism, where group claims are pursued against large multinational companies in the English Courts, in relation to alleged acts or omissions of their subsidiaries abroad, often relating to environmental or human rights issues. So starting off with Brexit, although it's only just over a month to the end of the Brexit transition period, it's still not clear whether a trade deal will be agreed between the UK and the EU, or importantly, from the perspective of English court proceedings, whether the EU will agree that the UK can accede to the Lugano Convention in its own right. I say that's important because unless proceedings are started in the UK or in an EU court before the end of the year, the recast Brussels regulation will no longer apply. And that's the regulation which currently provides for uniform jurisdiction rules and straightforward enforcement of judgments between the UK and the EU, as well as between all EU member states. The Lugano Convention 2007, which currently applies between the UK and EFTA countries, Norway, Switzerland and Iceland, will also cease to apply from the end of the year unless the UK can rejoin that convention in its own right. If it does, then Lugano will apply between the UK and EU member states, as well as Norway, Switzerland and Iceland. And it's in similar form to recast Brussels, so if that happens, not much will change. Most significantly, English judgments will continue to be easily enforceable around the EU and the EFTA countries. But so far, the EU hasn't consented to the UK's accession to Lugano, and you need unanimous agreement. Now, whether that's part of the EU's negotiating stance or whether its reluctance will continue even if there's a deal, we just don't know. If the UK can't rejoin Lugano, then the question of whether an English judgement will be enforceable around the EU will depend in part on whether it's covered by the 2005 Hague Convention on Choice of Court Agreements. That will apply where the English Court had jurisdiction over the dispute based on an exclusive English jurisdiction clause entered into, after Hague entered into force for the UK. But there's some uncertainty as to whether the relevant date is 1st October 2015, when the EU signed us and most other member states up, or 1st January 2021, when the UK will rejoin Hague in its own right. The European Commission takes the view that the relevant date is 1st January 2021, which would mean agreements entered into before that date aren't covered though it's frankly not clear why that should be the case. The UK's view is that the relevant date is 1st October 2015 and it's legislating to clarify that as a matter of English law. But neither that legislation nor the Commission's view will be binding on the EU courts that may ultimately have to decide the issue in future. If the 2005 Hague Convention doesn't apply And assuming, of course, we don't have Lugano, then the question of whether an English judgment can be enforced in a particular EU member state, and if so, how, will be a matter for local law. Most countries seem likely to be okay, although it's likely to take longer and cost more, but there may be some difficulties in some countries. We understand the Scandinavian countries and Austria may be problematic, for example. So that all needs to be borne in mind in choosing a dispute resolution clause where you think you may need to enforce any judgment in the EU. There's more analysis on that in a recent talk that Maura delivered both as a webinar and a uh, podcast. And there's a a link to that in the notes for this podcast. Another key question in the run-up to the end of the transition period for those who have potential claims that they haven't yet issued is whether it's worth issuing the claim in the English court before the end of the year so that it falls within the recast Brussels regulation and therefore you know any judgment will be enforceable around the EU subject to some very limited exceptions. Another advantage of issuing before the end of the year is that you shouldn't need the court's permission to serve the proceedings out of the jurisdiction so long as the case falls within recast Brussels, or indeed the Lugano or Hay Conventions. That will be the case where there's an English jurisdiction clause, but also a much wider range of cases. So, for example, where the defendant is domiciled within the jurisdiction or where the claim relates to a tort committed within the jurisdiction. Where you do need permission to serve out, that can be costly, not least because of the duty of full and frank disclosure that applies to the application. Because of a rule change recently approved by the Civil Procedure Rule Committee, it seems that from January you will still be able to serve outside the jurisdiction without needing the court's permission where there is an English jurisdiction clause, even if it doesn't fall within the Hague Convention and even if we don't have Lugano. That's a very recent development, so it isn't included in the recent webinar I mentioned. In fact, we're still waiting for the exact wording of the new rule to be made public. It's obviously good news for claimants, where there's an English jurisdiction clause, and it takes away one of the advantages of issuing before the end of the year in those cases. Though, obviously, there may be other reasons you want to issue now, particularly to get the benefit of easy enforcement under recast Brussels. That's a very quick summary of some of the key points. Obviously there's uh, lots more I could say and we will be publishing more information and analysis as we get closer to the end of the transition period and hopefully the position becomes clearer in relation to Lugano. So I'll now hand over to Maura. Thanks Anna. First for me is a quick update on the Disclosure
1: Pilot in the Business and Property Courts, which is now set to run to the end of 2021. In our last podcast at the beginning of October, I spoke about some amendments that had been proposed to clarify various aspects of the Pilot Rules, including, for example, the timing of the obligation to disclose known adverse documents and the circumstances in which parties have to send document preservation notices to former employees. Those amendments are helpful, as I said, though they don't make any fundamental changes to the pilot, and the news is they have now been approved by the Civil Procedure Rule Committee. It's not clear exactly when they will be brought in, but I expect we won't have to wait for the usual CPR update round in April. I should think it's likely to be this year or early in 2021. Secondly, witness evidence reform, which I also spoke about in our last podcast, As I explained then, there's a proposed new practice direction and appendix to govern trial witness statements in the business and property courts. The aim is to improve witness evidence by reducing the potential for the witness's recollections to be influenced by the process of taking the statement and also by removing irrelevant or inadmissible material that commonly appears in statements such as detailed quotations from the documents and, and commentary on them. Now, all that may sound uncontroversial. But the drafts contain some more dramatic changes as well, such as a a new requirement to state how well the witness recalls important disputed matters of fact, and to indicate the extent to which that recollection has been affected by considering documents. There's also a requirement to identify what documents the witness has referred to or been referred to for the purpose of providing the statement, including privileged documents, so it's not clear how much detail would have to be given. So these new requirements will represent a pretty significant change in practice. But I said all that last time, the update is that the Business and Property Courts Board has now approved the new practice direction and it will be considered by the Civil Procedure Rule Committee in December. So I expect it will come into force from April if it finds favour with the committee. Now on the current drafting the new rules will apply to witness statements signed after they come into force. So it's obviously sensible for parties to get to grips with the new requirements now, since statements currently being taken may in some cases not be finalised until April or whenever the rules take effect. And the new practice direction requires both a witness and the legal representative effectively to certify compliance with the requirements. So you'll want to make sure you're in a position where that can be done. Moving on then to remote hearings, which is another topic we've discussed in our previous podcasts. And of course, it's been a pretty unique feature of litigation in what I expect will be known as the year of the pandemic, hopefully the only one with the positive vaccine news we've been seeing lately. Anyway, what I want to mention is the Lord Chief Justice's report for 2020, which was published earlier this month and which unsurprisingly has quite a lot of discussion of the move to remote hearings as a result of COVID-19. Although it recognises that audio and video hearings may not be suitable in all areas, it says that for many hearings, remote technology has been very effective, demonstrating the widespread benefits to be gained from modernisation, for example, by removing the need to attend court for short hearings. The success of remote hearings has been particularly apparent in the business and property courts, where 85% of the court's work was heard remotely under the original timetable during lockdown. And the report says consideration is being given to the longer term potential for increased efficiencies through the use of remote hearings in in some aspects of the court's work. So while the worst of the pandemic will hopefully be behind us in the near future, I expect the greater use of remote hearing technology will, will be here to stay.
0: Thanks, Maura. It is impressive, I think, that there is little or no backlog for cases in the business and property courts. Not all areas of the justice system have fared so well, of course, but uh, it seems clear that for commercial cases, at least, remote hearings have been a success. So I'll hand over now to Joanne to look at class action tourism. Thanks, Anna. So,
2: as many listeners will be aware, class action tourism is an increasingly familiar feature of the litigation landscape in England and Wales. And by that, I mean large group claims which are brought against UK domiciled parent companies relating to the activities of their subsidiaries abroad. These claims are often, although not exclusively, brought against those in the mining and energy industries. And they typically seek to recover losses resulting from alleged environmental damage in the foreign country or, in some cases, alleged human rights abuses. There are a number of high profile claims of this sort being pursued in the English courts which are attractive for these claims for a number of reasons including the availability of funding through claimant law firms or litigation funders who are increasingly encouraging or even driving these sorts of claims. So the general strategy for claimants in these cases is to bring proceedings against the UK domiciled parent company as an anchor defendant and then seek to join other relevant group companies, the subsidiaries, to the English litigation. There are two key issues to highlight in relation to this strategy. The first is whether there is an arguable claim against the parent company in relation to the relevant acts. So whether the parent company owes a direct duty of care to the claimants where it is a foreign subsidiary and not the parent that is directly running operations on the ground. If that direct duty of care is not owed by the parent, then the claim in the English courts cannot get off the ground. And that's been a very hot topic in recent years um, in these kind of claims, with a number of cases going up to the, the Courts of appeal and, and several to the Supreme Court. So, for example, in the Vedanta case, which went to the Supreme Court, um, the court found that there was an arguable duty of care on the part of the parent company relating to um, alleged environmental pollution in that case arising from the mining operations of the English parent subsidiary in Zambia, um, at a copper mine in Zambia. And that case is now proceeding in the High Court, and I should say that this firm is is acting um, in those proceedings. There is also a further Supreme Court decision awaited um, in the Shell case relating to alleged pollution from a pipeline um, and some associated infrastructure um, in Nigeria. And in that case, the Court of Appeal found that there is no arguable duty, so so um, uh, opposite to the, to the Vedanta decision, on the part of the parent company. So essentially on the basis that it's not sufficient to establish a duty to show that the parent company has issued mandatory group-wide policies, that's not enough. The Court of Appeal said it would be necessary to show that the parent company has taken control or even joint control is enough of the relevant operations in a much more direct and substantial way. So we will need to wait um, and see whether the Supreme Court uh, agrees with that that approach, the approach taken by the the Court of Appeal there, uh, when the judgment is handed down and that's awaited. If there is an arguable claim against the, the parent company, so the first limb, In a case of this sort, the second key issue is whether the claims against the parent and or the subsidiary should be pursued in the English court. And that has generally been a difficult point for the UK domicile parent company to resist because the UK is bound by the recast Brussels regulation. Um, That's the the EU regulation which governs questions of jurisdiction against uh, EU domicile defendants. Uh, which includes for these purposes the UK until the end of the Brexit transition period at the end of this year. Under recast Brussels, the English court has jurisdiction as of right against UK domiciled defendants and it cannot decline to hear the claim simply on the basis that there's a more appropriate forum for the claim to be heard. So typically the focus on a jurisdiction challenge is whether the claim against the foreign subsidiary should be allowed to proceed in the English court, given that the claim against the parent can proceed as of right, and whether that claim should be pursued, if at all, in the foreign court. The Supreme Court decision in Vedanta established, helpfully for the defendants, that the anchor defendant point isn't, though, a trump card as regards the subsidiary if the parent company is prepared to submit to proceedings in the foreign jurisdiction and the claimant can obtain substantial justice there. But of course, uh, for claims brought from the beginning of next year, the recast Brussels regulation uh, will no longer apply and so in principle the English court will be able to decline jurisdiction against the parent company, not just the subsidiary, if it considers uh, there is another available forum that's clearly more appropriate. But, in fact, the UK has applied to rejoin the Lugano Convention, which has very similar um, provisions, and so if that happens, which will depend on whether the EU gives consent, um, the English court will then have jurisdiction over the UK domiciled parent as of right, um, the same position uh, as currently under the recast Brussels. So, against all that background, there is a a recent decision worth worth noting, which is the High Court decision in a case against BHP, which is very interesting. And the claims there were brought by over 200,000 Brazilian claimants against two BHP entities, one domiciled in England and the other in Australia. This was an English claim brought against both those companies. And the claim alleged that the defendants were liable to compensate them for losses sustained as a result of the collapse um, of the Fundao dam in Brazil in 2015. And the owner and operator of the dam was a Brazilian mining company, um, which is a joint venture between uh, a Brazilian BHP entity and another party. And in a very recent decision handed down just a, a week or two ago by Mr Justice Turner, The High Court has struck out the claims, including the claim against the English domiciled company. And they did that on the basis that the claims were an abusive process, particularly on the basis that because there were large numbers of overlapping claims underway in Brazil, involving many of the same claimants who were then seeking the same compensation for the same alleged damage in the English proceedings even though the current defendants so the English and Australian entities were not a party to the Brazilian claims and essentially in his reasoning the judge said that there was there was an acute risk of irreconcilable decisions and concurrent proceedings in Brazil and in England would lead to utter chaos in both jurisdictions with a huge waste of time costs and effort Um, And importantly, he wasn't satisfied that the claimants wouldn't be able to obtain access to substantial justice in Brazil. So the BHP decision shows that even if the English courts have have jurisdiction as of right under um, the recast Brussels regulation or potentially Lugano in the future, it doesn't mean that English courts are powerless to prevent an action continuing where there's a clear abuse of the court's process. Uh, So, for example, as in the BHP case, where it effectively duplicates proceedings brought by the same or overlapping claimants abroad. Although I should say the claimants um, in the BHP case have said they will seek permission to appeal the decision. And it's also worth noting that as an alternative to its decision to strike out the claims, um, the court said it would have stayed the claims in the case of the English company under the discretion in the recast Brussels regulation to grant a stay where there are related proceedings already pending in a foreign court um, and the, in the case of the Australian company on the basis that Brazil is a more appropriate forum.
0: That brings us to the end of today's podcast. Thank you to Mora and to Joanne and to all of you for listening. I hope you'll tune in again for our next edition in a couple of months.